0: Santa Talos' invincible bronze body is coursing with icor and Christmas cheer. I saw three ships. He is here to hurl presents and goodies at your three ships as they come sailing in. On Christmas
1: Day, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day in the morning, initiate Cretan Defense Protocol. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to
0: Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And you know what we were doing right before we started recording? We were listening to the Smashing Pumpkins Christmas song. (laughs) (laughs) We we were, yeah. Which wasn't bad. I I didn't uh, dislike it. No, I I actually kind of love it. It's hilarious, though, hearing Billy Corgan gushing breathlessly about how there are toys for everyone on (laughs) Christmas Day, Uh, which is funny because, like, you you can totally believe it. Like, you know, he's in— I guess I wouldn't normally think of the Smashing Pumpkins as music for children, uh, but like the, the the obsession, like even as an adult, I can remember what it felt like to uh, to believe that toys were incoming. Like how exciting that was that you would have new objects to play pretend with.
0: Incoming presents, hurtling yeah. towards your ship as they're thrown by the, uh, the the Bronze Age uh, automaton, Talos.
1: Well, you know, I, w- I would say that even as an adult, I still know what it's like sometimes to want things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's nothing as an adult that I feel that is equivalent to the way that I wanted toys as a child. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've
0: spoken on the show before about how, you know, you would want a toy so badly that you would dream about it and like see it in your bed with you when you woke up in the morning. and Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a different realm of, uh, of of wants and needs when you're that age, but toys are fascinating. Uh, you know, they've, they've been with us since very ancient times. We have evidence of uh, you know toys dating back to you know we have things like the the, the wonderful horse toys of ancient Egypt, uh, and they speak to the timeless nature of play and the use of physical objects in our play. Yeah, uh, and not only in our play, also in our instruction.
1: Well, they also fit very much into uh, into the archaeological picture of ancient technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the earliest physical evidence of wheels, I think, in the Western Hemisphere, definitely in the Americas, is wheeled toys, like you know, like little statuettes of uh, of horses and stuff found in ancient Mesoamerica and South America, I believe, that have wheels for moving around on.
0: Yeah, um, and then uh, you know, also they have du- often have dual purposes as well. I was when I was in Hawaii most recently, I, I went to a few different. Uh, museums that were devoted to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, oceanic um, technology and oceanic uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, they pointed out that model ships were essential to shipbuilders. You know, they showed in miniature what the, the larger product would be and helped you instruct others in how to build it. And then the reverse
1: is you've also kind of made a wonderful toy in the process. Uh, but also I think toys are – We shouldn't think of them as frivolous as far as inventions go because – play is not frivolous. The play that children do shapes the – I mean, it's like the most important part of a child's education. I think far more even than the technical subjects they learn as they grow up. I mean, you've got to be able to uh, explore the physical world and manipulate things uh, and, and toys are an important part of that.
0: Yeah. In some cases, toys are, are actually training uh, you know, young uh, bodies and young minds for the manipulation of important tools. Uh, you know, other times, especially in modern ages, they can be more specifically educational. Mm-hmm. Though, uh, generally, when you look at the history of toys, that is is kind of like the history of how we think about children, right? The idea that this is a, a time to educate them when toys is more or less, uh, uh, you know, a modern uh, uh, discovery, uh, if you will. But uh, but also, you know, there are ways to think about toys, such as you know, thinking about them as products. I was reading uh, a 1968 article by Edward A. Newmark titled "British Toys," which is just all about British toys, but he he points out that, you know, these are unique as items created for sale. Most toys are aimed at an individual who will not be a repeat customer, uh, not until some 20 years later when they perhaps buy the same toy again for their own children. Most toys have an active life of a mere, you know, couple of years, and uh, the test of a great toy is whether it will still be on the market a decade after its release. And so many toys pass into history only to, to only possibly be resurrected 20 years later on an updraft of collective nostalgia. And yet other toys have become true classics and stand the test of time. They are the sort of iconic toys that you'll see Santa Claus bringing to children in, um, you know, in cartoons and whatnot. The kind of toys that even modern Santa Claus uh, fictions
1: will, will show Santa Claus making uh, in his uh, work shop yeah totally this year in 2019 Santa will not be bringing children pogs mostly <laughs> and will not be bringing children tickle me Elmos unless there's some strange revival but lots of kids all over the place are probably going to be getting toy trucks and dolls and blocks I mean there are right. certain toy forms that stand the test of time yeah the sort of g- generic classic toys yeah uh, that uh, that still
0: show up under under the Christmas tree that are still part of our, our lives um, See, we've touched on some of the, the roles that toys play. You know, they, you know we, we, sometimes they educate. Sometimes it's, a, it's about tool use. Other times, you would just see toys emerge sort of peeling off from technological advancements of the day. And, uh, you know, and others are examples of specific designs intended to teach. So history is full of philosophical toys, educational toys, sports toys, uh, war toys, adult toys, pointless
1: toys, and more. Right, and for that reason, we thought it might be fun to do a couple of episodes here where we just look at a series of different toys throughout history, where they came from, uh, and what made them so popular. Right, and uh, this will be great because these
0: are inventions; these uh, these are things that people created, uh, and they're part of our our techno history. But they're not necessarily items that benefit from an entire episode's treatment. So. Let's uh, let's throw open uh, Santa Talos's bag and see what kind of toys we have to discuss here today.
1: All right. First, it looks like we've got before us some kind of strange lament configuration <laughs> type of box, except it's got a handle you can crank. Yeah. I don't know. what What is this here? It's a delightful
0: little clockwork box. And, and, and if I open it, it has such sights to show me. Uh, it is, of course, the Jack in the Box, <laughs> a classic toy. Again, this is one of those that— You see in Santa Claus cartoons, you see Santa Claus making in old-timey Santa Claus movies. And Uh, in Indeed, it still shows up under the tree, sometimes with a franchise character jumping out of it instead of kind of a a generic
1: old-timey clown. Okay, so how does the -the jack-in-the-box work for those, uh, those youngsters who have never actually held one? Well, one winds a
0: crank on the side of the box to power a music box inside, generally playing something like Pop Goes the Weasel. You know, something that's mm-hmm. like, dun da dun da 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 dun, da, 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 and it means the faster you crank it, the faster the song goes. That's Is that still under copyright? Are we going to get in trouble? <laughs> uh, I don't it, it, Surely that's fair use, <laughs> even if it were. Uh, but it, at any rate, um, eventually it's going to trigger the box to pop open, generally at the end of the song. And when it pops open, a coiled spring is going to launch a clown puppet into action and and generally, it is the equivalent of a small hand puppet, very much in the style of Punch and Judy uh, the the old timey puppets they have different names in different uh, languages, but this would be the the street puppet show to amuse children and adults where Punch and Judy kind of just beat the crap out of each other and also encounter various authority figures. They encounter the devil. Uh Um, It's often been compared – like Punch is basically – Itchy and scratchy. Yeah, itchy and scratchy and Punch is also kind of Homer Simpson. except a more violent Homer Simpson. Um, Maybe it's more of a bender. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, but but also, in fact, uh, I've, I've read that Punch in a Box was a, a predecessor where you would actually just have Punch himself jump out of the box uh, once you're done cranking it. Uh, this, according to Antonia Fraser's A History of Toys. Uh, but uh, A History of Toys uh, by Frazier also stresses that the exact origins of the Jack in the Box
1: are unknown. Now, I'm trying to think about categorizing this toy. Like, does it count as – Toy uh, I mean I guess it I guess it must, but like uh, how does one play with it right, like what is the act of playing once the thing has already popped out once and you know what 's going to happen yeah
0: it's a, it's a clockwork amusement right yeah. it's it's not necessarily something that I imagine factors into a a, num, a lot of children 's imagination play mm-hmm. it It is kind of a spectacle that is unleashed that is surprising, and it's also kind of a trick, another. Toy item that uh, that is very similar is of course the canister of peanuts.
1: That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, the spring snakes mm-hmm. uh, again to go back to the Simpsons. The can of beer nuts. Oh, beer nuts! But then of course you lift the lid and the snakes pop out. Yeah, and
0: it's still hilarious. I just watched an episode of Stephen Colbert where he goes to New Zealand uh-huh. and he he gives this to I think he gives it to Lord the uh, the musician. Uh, telling her that it is um, an American tradition and she opens it and the snake scares her and it's delightful. Part of the joke being that there are no snakes in New Zealand.
1: Oh, in New Zealand. Okay. I'd been thinking Australia and I was like, what's going to happen The funnel <laughs> web spider comes out? <laughs>
0: now, we'll, we'll get a little into possible origins here, but basically, this, is, this has been with us uh, for quite a while. Um, Im- improved materials and technology made the toy a more widespread success uh, in, a, in the 18th century, uh, meaning that, you know, it wasn't just going to be the, uh, you know, something that would uh, please, very wealthy children. It wasn't like this, this clockwork philosophical toy that the children would get to look at occasionally. But it does seem to emerge from this world of, uh, of, of
1: clockwork ingenuity. Yes, uh, we talked about this in our episode on the canard de girateur, the the pooping duck, mm-hmm. um, or the digesting duck, I guess. We put a lot of emphasis on the poop for some reason. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was this era where there were people who were becoming increasingly good at mechanical engineering and creating these clockwork devices that had complex inner workings and thus could generate complex outward behaviors based on things that were hidden. You know, you couldn't see what was going on inside, but it was doing complex stuff. Right. And this was part of a history of philosophical debate— about whether in fact living things were somehow like this. Were living things somehow uh, machines in which all the individual parts could be identified and and stuff? Or were there sort of indivisible and ineffable elements that made actual life forms in nature different from the machines built by the clockmakers?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and part of this whole effort, uh, this whole movement was, was the, the emergence of music boxes, which were tremendous uh, – uh, success and mm-hmm. uh, and still are, are very popular. Also, self-playing instruments, which we got into a little bit in our saxophone episode, oh, yeah. uh, they're a part of this this whole uh, world as well. But essentially, you can also think of the Jack in the Box as a um, as a music box that packs some punch, sometimes literally. Uh, <laughs> now, in terms of where it, this actual technology, like like where the first Jack in the Box arises from, I've seen some. I would say shaky sources attributing the invention to a German clockmaker of the 16th century named Klaus. Just Klaus? <laughs> yeah. Klaus or or Claus perhaps, which of course is a little suspect because of Santa Claus. Right. Uh but I can't I cannot find a firm source on this. Perhaps it's out there, perhaps somebody can can bring it to my attention. But in my research, I could not find a firm source saying, yeah, we think that a, a 16th century German clockmaker maker made the first Jack in the Box. In fact, as uh, previously mentioned, some sources state the origin is unknown. And I've noticed several toy history books that seemingly don't explore the history of the Jack in the, in the Box at all. Mm-hmm. But in looking at uh, Gary Martin's excellent uh, Phrase Finder website, uh, which, which is, is is wonderful, I do recommend people check it out, uh, he has a, an, an entry on the Jack in the Box and I also was looking at a, at a book titled "Gothic Effigy" by David uh, Anwin Jones, and uh, and something becomes increasingly clear: the toy seems to have been named after some turn of phrase that preexisted
1: it. Hmm. So Jack in the Box, you might have, what, called somebody a Jack in the Box before there was a Jack in the Box toy? Exactly. Uh, Martin points to usages of the phrase
0: Jack in the Box and sometimes lack in the box from the 16th century that suggests that Jack in the Box or lack in the box was sort of like pig in the poke. Hmm. Uh, Now, if you're not familiar with that, pig in the poke means like a pig in a bag, and the idea is... Don't buy a pig in the bag. You know, don't buy a, a pig sight unseen because
1: right. you don't know what you'll get. Some might be wrong with it. Yeah, uh, th- This seems to have negative implications for the jack-in-the-box restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they,
0: they really did, uh, you know, like a full um, history. They just thought about the pleasant surprise, I guess, of uh, uh-huh. the box. But, uh, yeah, so the idea is a jack-in-the-box would, would mean, you know, something unpleasant that was purchased sight unseen. Or, indeed, it might mean the swindler who sells boxes that either don't contain what they're supposed to contain or contain nothing at all. And that seems to play pretty well with the basic experience of the jack-in-the-box, right? The box contains a fright rather than any kind of material goods. It, and, and again, it's not even something you can play with inside. It's just a puppet that jumps out at you and startles you. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it is, again, not unlike its toy kin, the snake in the canister
1: of nuts. Now, by asking that question earlier, though, about whether it's a toy, I didn't mean to undermine its role. I, I guess I was just asking, like, what actually constitutes a toy? I, I think it's clear that that these the Jack in the Boxes, as a toy or whatever you want to call it, are popular with children. Have been for a mm-hmm. long time, and they do even after they've been surprised once, repeat the experience. There's something intellectually interesting going on there, or developmentally interesting that they've already had it pop out once. They're not going to be surprised, but they'll still keep playing with it. They'll crank the handle mm-hmm. again and like manipulate the speed of playback and stuff.
0: Yeah, and let's face it: if you came in to work one day and there was a Jack in the Box closed on your desk, mm-hmm. what would you do? You'd have to crank it and see what pops out, right? Yeah. So it does continue to have, like, any, anybody that's new to the Jack in the Box will have to invoke the experience. And then they might invoke it again. Now, there is another potential origin story that sometimes makes the rounds, um, and that is the tale of a 13th century Norfolk Christian saint-like figure, not an actual saint, uh, but uh, an individual by the name of Sir John uh, Shorn, who is said to have captured the devil in a boot, (laughs) Um, and he was also said to be blessed in the healing of gout. And, of course, this is where it gets kind of complicated, right? Because uh, um, gout, of course, is an inflammatory arthritis that might well be described as a devil in the boot mm-hmm. and has been illustrated, you know, various times through
1: history as a monster or devil that chews on a person's foot. Right. Uh, the idea there that gout can affect multiple parts of the body, but it often manifests in like somebody's big toe. Right. Yeah. But you could also get it in your elbow or whatever.
0: Right. And then, of course, there's like pseudo gout as well, which is, uh, which is different, but, but classic gout has long been been with uh, with humans, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's kind of complicated. Because on one hand, he this particular individual is sometimes shown as having a boot with the devil peeking out of it, and so the argument is like this is kind of the basis for the box that contains uh, a. Um, a what might have actually been a devil in some cases, but then becomes a clown or other figures uh, as the, uh, you know, as it is adapted more for children. Mm-hmm. But uh, I should point out that Martin, in uh, looking at this, thinks that the historical, the historical connective tissue between Shorn and the Jack in the Box is pretty much non-existent. So there's, there's not a lot to actually go on there. But he, uh, he does point to a firework of the 1700s known as Lack in the Box. And, uh, and this was mentioned in John Babbington's Pyrotechnia, which was published in 1635. And, uh, and this, this, uh, this might well be, uh, be where the name comes from as well. So would this be a firework that pops out of a box in some way, or at least is a? It is a. Yeah, I, I get the the idea that maybe it had some sort of box, or maybe it was just the idea that it was a surprise that it it pops at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and therefore, you know, this could be something they got the name for this firework from the pre-existing uh, phrase, and then both of these help to inform the naming of this strange box that has a puppet that jumps out of it. Because again, it is a shock, and it is also literally a a lack in the box or a jack in the box.
1: Is a jack in the box supposed to be scary? Is it supposed to kind of startle the child? I think it is supposed to
0: startle the child. Yeah. Now, now, is it scary as well as startling? I think that depends on what jumps out. Yeah. Is it a clown, which is delightful? Uh, or <laughs> is it now? It, yes, clowns are delightful. Clowns are for children. Uh-huh. It's only adults, by and large, who think that clowns are scary. But if it's a devil, then I think you could definitely make the argument that it is, in, it is intended to frighten the child uh, or the or humorously frighten the adult that opens it. Now, in looking at that book Gothic Effigy uh, by Jones, Jones, however, contends that the devil uh, is still present in the jack-in-the-box uh, as, quote, horned jack bursting from his side of confinement, unquote, <laughs> is the key idea toned down uh, to a clown in the toy. And this would uh, – Their the argument here is that this uh, would have emerged from gothic fascination with devil's ornamental boxes uh, such as one they he puts out was in uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's uh, Wilder's Hand and from 1864, and he ties all of this in with uh, the ongoing influence of Gothic traditions uh, on culture and children's costumes, toys, books, and more. Trevor Burrus Okay, so some intentional scary elements here or associations. Mm, or at least, yes, yeah, yeah that's, that's the argument. But then again, those scary elements may have been removed uh, to make it just merely startling to the uh-huh. child. But it is, an, an, I think, without a doubt, It is meant to be a startling uh, toy. It is meant to be something you give to a small child and watch their face as they are shocked, surprised, and then hopefully they will laugh Mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, it, it it was
1: startling, but then there is no actual threat present. You know, my thinking has developed over the past few minutes. Uh, when asking why is it that you see a child playing with a jack in the box repeatedly cranking it over and over mm-hmm. and having the thing pop out even after they've already done it you know once or twice they know what's going to happen I wonder if these are sort of like experiments with object permanence much mm. the same way uh, that the game of peekaboo plays a developmental role with children like yeah. establishing that an object or a person can be hidden but will emerge again when the barrier to vision is removed that's a good point. Uh, Another thing that I'm thinking about is that the second time you
0: do it especially, the child is probably more aware that they have control over when the startling moment occurs yes they know it's going to occur at the end of that song, for instance and there's probably something empowering there in realizing that they are the master of the fright they are about to receive
1: exactly and I would see that I would say that really comes through in the way that you see children manipulate the speed of the crank when mm-hmm. they do it like they will often either speed way up or slow way down. Down right towards the end of the song, because yes. the song lets you know how much more time is left before the thing emerges.
0: Yeah, like rushing towards the thrill and then maybe backing off a little
1: bit. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah,
0: it's interesting. It makes me w- kind of want to pick up a, a, a Jack in the Box. We don't. I don't think we have one in our household right now, anyway. Uh, but but I almost I want to find like a good one. One with pub. One with a devil inside or a Krampus. That would be nice.
1: Or a uh, quartet of <laughs> sure
0: Oh no, no! Surely somebody has made a lament configuration jack-in-the-box, that would be,
1: that's perfect. It's so perfect, it has to have been done already. Right. If you haven't, if that doesn't exist, whoever's got the right Etsy shop out there, you get on it. Yes.
0: Yeah, I know there have been, people have adapted Rubik's Cubes into the limit configuration, but jack-in-the-box is just a must-have.
1: All right, I think maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can discuss the Flying Disc.
0: All right, we're back. What is this marvelous flying disc that uh, that now
1: emerges from uh, Santa Talos's sack? Well, of course it is, to use the semi-branded term, the Frisbee. Robert, were you a Frisbee kid when you were a kid? I mean, we always had Frisbees. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, I, I never got into like Frisbee golf or anything like that, but a Frisbee was a must-have and— still to today, like we I threw frisbee or an Naerobi, maybe some variation on the Frisbee design with my son, like literally just this weekend, so
1: yeah the uh, I feel like the the family uh, the family tossing cliche is like the the father and the son throwing the baseball right with the baseball gloves. I don't think that happens all that much, except among like dedicated people who are actually into baseball. Oh,
0: well, I'm not into baseball, and I've done it. Uh, Yeah, just because it's such a cliche, I'm like you feel the irresistible tug of it, Uh, and you and I and so we ended up getting the the baseball glove, the the softball, and we threw it back and forth, and I'm like, yes, I feel like a Norman Rockwell painting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is great. Uh, you know, we don't, we, we've only done it like you know, two or three times. But I've still, it was, it was neat to be a part of that Norman Rockwell experience.
1: Well, maybe my impression is mistaken. But I, I generally think that that you've got this cliche of people throwing the baseball. But what, what is actually way more common is throwing the Frisbee. The
0: Frisbee, in my opinion,
1: is far more fun. Yes. And less likely to break a window. Though I remember from my childhood that somehow I always ended up getting hit in the mouth with a Frisbee. Oh, well. Uh, but it, that's great that you're throwing a Frisbee. Instead of a baseball, there because the frisbee is nice and lightweight in its modern plastic form. Yeah. So the frisbee is a toy that has both ancient and uniquely 20th century origins. Uh, As for the ancient origins, we know that humans have been throwing circular disc-shaped objects for sport for thousands of years, at least least as far back as the 8th century BCE. For instance, we know that the discus throw was one of the five sports of the ancient Greek pentathlon, which consisted of a foot race— a javelin throw, a discus throw, a long jump, and finally wrestling. And I think training for this multi-event competition held some association with military training. You can see how there would be some overlap with the skills on display there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the discus competition seemed to involve athletes throwing a heavy circular disc, not in the way we generally throw a frisbee today with a flick of the arm, but by flinging it through a whole body twisting or spinning motion – where you would spin the body around or twist the body around and then transfer the angular momentum of the spinning body into a throw when you release the disc. And Mm -hmm. so physically, the discus throw sort of turns the body into a sling, you know, like the weapon traditionally associated with shepherds, where you would uh, generate momentum in a rock or something by spinning it around in a circle. You do this with your whole body for the discus. There are mentions of disc-throwing events uh, in Homer's Iliad. Sometimes it's used as a measure of distance. So, like, you could just say that something was as far away as a young man can fling a discus. That's in there, which Mm -hmm. Okay. A, a great unit of measure. Uh, there also appears to be a reference to some form of discus throwing as one of the funeral games after the death of Patroclus, right? Mm. So Patroclus burns on the funeral pyre and then they have games in his honor. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to read this section. This is in the Samuel Butler translation. Though in the translation I'm about to read from, the thing being thrown is not called a frisbee or a discus. It's called a quoit which can mean like a disc, but can also, I think, mean a ring rather than a solid disc. But anyway, the account goes like this. Then uprose the two mighty men, Polypoides and Leontius, with Ajax, son of Telamon, and noble Epius. They stood up one after another, and Epius took the quoit, whirled it, and flung it from him, which set all the Achaeans laughing. After him threw Leontius of the race of Mars— Ajax, son of Telamon, threw third and sent the quoit beyond any mark that had been made yet. But when mighty Polypoides took the quoit, he hurled it as though it had been a stockman's stick, which he sends flying among his cattle when he's driving them. So far did his throw outdistance those of the others. Oh. Uh, again, with the point of comparison that I— It's not very helpful to me. I don't know what you do with a Stockman (laughs) stick. But apparently that means you could throw it really far. And then, of course, it it shows up again in the works of Homer. Like in the Odyssey, there's a section where Odysseus embarrasses some dudes, I think the Phaeacians, by throwing a huge discus farther than any of them can. Uh, So uh, the discus throw is also depicted in a famous bronze uh, sculpture from classical Greece, the discobolus, which just means disc thrower, by the sculptor Myron of uh, Eleutherae. And the the original work is lost, but there are a ton of copies from the Roman period. And it's the famous pose. You've probably seen it depicted somewhere where the discus thrower is sort of leaned over with the body twisted. Oh, yes. uh, With the arm out. And of course, most people probably know the discus throw is also part of the modern Olympic Games, and they use sort of a lens-shaped disc of about two kilograms or about 4.4 pounds for the men's competition and a discus of about one kilogram or 2.2 pounds for the women's event. So I, when I was thinking about the Olympics, I started thinking like, well, what is it that makes the discus special as a thing to throw? Like there are other types of throwing competitions. I mean, just competitions of people seeing how far they could throw a rock or a javelin or mm-hmm. something go way back into history. There's the right. shot put event where you're just throwing a heavy ball. Right. What is it that makes the discus special as a thrown object? And it, it turns out that the discus actually does have a lot of very interesting, unique properties that— are based on its shape. So uh, to get into those for a moment, uh, I was reading an article by the North Carolina State Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Larry Silverberg talking about the physics of the Olympic discus throw event. And he mentions that a lot of the skill in the discus throw is actually controlling the release of the discus. You know, it's not its not all in just like how hard you can whirl your body, how strong you are. It's very tightly controlling how the disc is oriented and what, what happens when it leaves your hand. And I would say the, the same thing is actually very true of throwing a Frisbee. I don't know how experienced you are with trying to like aim a Frisbee super carefully or get it to sail as far as possible. But like I think a lot of the skill actually comes down to what's happening right when you release it from your fingers. Yeah, uh, I feel
0: like – I mean I'm not one that is usually especially skilled at throwing things, but I feel like there is – there's something about throwing a a, a frisbee or a frisbee-like toy That feels very intuitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, again, I haven't played Frisbee golf and tried like that level of of accuracy. But I find that when I throw a Frisbee to someone, I have a much better ability to actually get get it to them.
1: You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Oh, well, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, that this intuitive property, which is funny because at the same time, I think more so than like a javelin or a baseball or a shot put, the discus is – it's fickle. It's dependent on the air and wind conditions, mm, yes. you know, that uh, they can be – the discus or the frisbee can be unpredictable in how it travels in ways that these other objects are not, even though in some ways it feels very uh, gentle and easy and intuitive to throw it somewhere.
0: Right. Like if you're just throwing the shot putt or a a larger rock, Uh you probably don't have
1: to account for wind all that much. Yeah. I mean, maybe a little bit, but Mm -hmm. not nearly to the extent that you would with a flat object like a discus or a frisbee. Uh, And Silverberg writes that it's really important to control the angle of release like you want to get it at the perfect angle to make it travel the farthest uh, he, he identifies a range between 37 and 42 degrees uh, as optimal and just think about like trying to fine-tune the release, of a discus while you're whirling your whole body around to get it to an uh, like a slice of the angle that small. yeah. Uh, and then of course you have to, as we were saying, account for wind. Like if the headwind is blowing in your face you want to throw it probably flatter, which makes sense, right? Because you don't want the headwinds blowing the uh, like catching under it and blowing it back toward you. You want to maximize the angle at which it gets lift uh, but doesn't get blown back in the opposite direction. Uh, I was also reading a good 2012 article in Reuters by Sharon Begley, which summarizes some of the basic aerodynamics uh, and some recent sports biomechanics research about the discus event. Uh, so a few key takeaways, because of its shape, throwing a discus is different from throwing a round object like a baseball or throwing a javelin. A discus is, at its core, a wing. It's an aerofoil. It, it, as it travels, it stays aloft by generating lift, similar to how the wings of an airplane generate lift to keep the plane in the air. Mm. And like with airplane wings, the physical design of the discus matters. A flatter design with more surface area generates more lift. Uh, but But once you've already picked out your discus, you know, you can't like – bring a huge different shaped discus to the Olympic event, I assume. (laughs) Uh, You know, once you've got the the physical dimensions of the discus locked down, in order to generate maximum lift, you need to mess with a couple more main variables. One is that you want to maintain a high speed of the throw. And this is also the same way that an airplane needs horizontal speed to maintain lift via its wings, right? If an airplane slows down, it'll lose altitude, right? Because it can't generate as much lift uh, under the wings. A discus needs to maintain horizontal horizontal speed to maintain that lift under its body. As it slows down due to drag as it travels through the air, the lift it generates will decrease and it will fall. But then also, uh, again, what's super important is getting just the right angle. You want the front edge of the discus raised slightly higher than its back edge to generate the most lift. And you also want to keep the disc rotating, of course, to stabilize the angle. The faster the discus is spinning, the flatter and more stable its angle will stay. And you might think about why would that be? But I bet a lot of people have done the physics experiment in like a high school physics class where you hold a spinning bicycle wheel by a little handle on its hub mm-hmm. and then you try to rotate the wheel against its plane – uh, against the plane on which it's spinning, you know, try to twist your wrist or something. There's a huge amount of resistance. It's like really hard to turn it uh, because rapidly spinning objects resist changes to the plane of their ro- rotation. Like the angular momentum of the spinning wants to keep it flat. Hmm. It's interesting to apply that to some of the, like the the
0: fictional spinning weapons you see sometimes utilized oh, yeah. in films uh and things specifically one of the Three Storms in Big Trouble in Little China uh-huh. has these uh, spinning gadgets that are like spinning blades Oh, yeah. and granted that's the blender a blender hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and granted that's a sorcerer. Uh so uh, you know we can we can give them a little credit but in in reality like that would be difficult to to
1: actually use a weapon like that, right? Because it's spinning. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I I imagine if it's spinning very fast you would get some resistance distance to trying to move your hands around. Trevor Burrus Right.
0: Likewise, I think other examples are you will see a robot using one, like Maximilian in uh, the the black hole. But again, high-powered robot, we can cut it some slack, I guess.
1: Trevor Burrus Yeah. So you want the right angle, you want high speed, you want rapid spinning to stabilize the angle. And also in this article, there's a counterintuitive finding that's conveyed by somebody named Mont Hubbard, who's a director of the Sports Biomechanics Lab at the University of California, Davis. And basically what this uh, person says is that you can actually get the farthest possible throw by throwing into a slight headwind. That seems – you wouldn't think that. Hmm. But this is because you can maximize the relative wind speed and generate more lift that way, Hmm. which means more lift means it stays higher in the air longer and travels farther. Now, it's clear that the Olympic discus is a competition instrument. It's made for solo distance throwing and, of course, made for humiliating your inferiors in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> so it's rather different from the frisbees or throwing discs that, that kids toss around for fun. These tend uh, in in the 20th century to be made of plastic. They're much lighter. They're designed to glide softly and generate tons of lift for long-distance travel with minimal throwing force. You don't have to— be really strong or spin your whole body around and generate the angular momentum to throw a frisbee. Right.
0: And then it'll it'll generally bounce off of a window instead of going through it, that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: Or, you know, as often happened when you <laughs> hitting me in the mouth, I mean if you can imagine getting hit in the mouth with a four and a half pound discus, that's not good. Yeah. So where did the frisbee come from? This different variation on the model. Uh, for that we need to meet a dude named Walter Frederick Morrison, known as Fred. And I'm going to use this as a few sources here. One, uh, uh, an obituary for for Morrison from 2010 in the L.A. Times by Dennis McClellan, um, an article I found in Time by Jennifer Latson, and also a, a, a summary of his life I found by somebody named Phil Kennedy who was a co-author with Fred Morrison of an autobiographical account of the creation of the Frisbee. But so Fred Morrison was born in the town of Richfield, Utah on January 23, 1920, At the age of 11, his father, who was an optometrist, uh, moved his practice and thus the whole family to California. As an adult, Morrison worked as a carpenter and later as a building inspector in the L.A. area. But in 1937, when Fred Morrison was around the age of 17 – He and his girlfriend Lucille, who would later become his wife, were at a Thanksgiving celebration at the house of Lucille's uncle. Hmm. And at this party, guests just started throwing a popcorn can lid around, uh, tossing it to each other in the backyard, which somehow sounds like either a very awesome party or a horrible party. Like how (laughs) do you end up that way? You're either having a really good time or things are going terribly and you're just (laughs) desperately searching for fun. Either way, it fits perfectly with
0: the – the spirit of Thanksgiving, right? Uh, but but I yeah I guess I'm imagining like one of those big tins of popcorn like we still have today, right? Uh, and uh, you know sometimes that's different flavors of popcorn. You pull the lid
1: off of that sucker, and yeah, it's kind of a perfect frisbee. And apparently, Fred and Lucille had so much fun they kept throwing the popcorn lid around for the following weeks. So they played with it so much that it suffered a lot of wear and tear, and eventually got some kind of sharp edges and became oh. dangerous. So they they retired the the popcorn can lid. They stole a cake pan mm-hmm. from. Fred's mother's kitchen and started throwing that around instead. And it looks like this started a cake pan tossing tradition. Uh, About a year later, Fred and Lucille took the cake pan to the beach in Santa Monica where they were just tossing it for fun. But apparently on this beach trip, somebody else thought that what they were doing looked like fun and came up to them and offered to pay a quarter for the cake pan so they could have it, take it, and toss it with their friends. And Fred Morrison, I think speaking to the Virginia pilot, said, quote, That got the wheels turning because you could buy a cake pan for five cents. And if people on the beach were willing to pay a quarter for it, well, there was business. Ah, ding, ding, ding. Flipping the cake pans. So first they just straight up bought cheap cake pans from the store, took them out to the beach to flip for a profit. So I guess there's really originally no value add here, right, except perhaps for the insight that it might be – fun to throw a cake pan. Uh, and maybe you know that might not have occurred to people otherwise. So maybe there is an added value there.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, it's kind of like selling overpriced umbrellas on a rainy day. right For or, people who forgot their umbrella, it's it's very convenient, and yes, you get to overcharge them,
1: right? Or you know, selling bottles of water on a yeah. a, at a hot parking lot or something. You know, people just didn't think to bring their own. Uh, so uh, Fred and his father apparently considered designing a custom metal disc for throwing, but this never came to fruition. And they kept selling cake pans at the beach until Fred Morrison went away to serve in the Army Air Corps during the uh, during World War II in the European theater, where he flew bomber missions over Italy. Oh wow! Uh, he was ultimately captured and held as a prisoner of war. Uh, And after being freed and returning home, Morrison came up with a design for a new kind of throwing disc, which he called the Whirlow Way. And I think this was named after some kind of racing horse. He was a fan of horses. Oh, uh, the
0: Whirlow Way. That's what the the Freeman used to uh,
1: overturn uh, the, the rule of the Harkonnens, correct? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, the wor- wording way. So I must assume Fred Morrison consumed some spice and saw over the sands <laughs> of time. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, but so over the next few years, together with a partner named Warren uh, Franschioni. Morrison worked on a number of different designs and prototypes for disks made out of that most wonderful of 20th century consumer materials, plastic. Ah. So now instead of metal disks, you've got plastic disks. And because of the sudden UFO craze that Mm. gripped America beginning in 1947, they called their product the Flyin' Saucer. Uh, apparently Morrison was a great salesman, and he would attract crowds during fly-in saucer demonstrations at fairgrounds, like demonstrating how far the disc would glide with a gentle toss. Apparently, they would make jokes about, you know, uh, you know, how could it really travel so far? Are there hidden wires? Can you see the hidden wires? <laughs> <laughs> and they were able to sell some of the toys, but not enough to justify the business. And Morrison and Franschione parted ways around 1950.
0: Well, you know, I'm, I'm realizing just how ingenious this product is now that I think about my, my own usages of the Frisbee, because there are other products and other toys that are very much in line with that, uh, you know, those stats we gave earlier about, you know, one to two years of play life, and then it's shelved, and then it, you don't sell another one to that individual until they're a grown up. Right. But the Frisbee can be used by children and adults alike. And even though a Frisbee is probably pretty durable, you can break a Frisbee, and more to the point, you can land a frisbee be in a place from which you cannot retrieve it. Yes, <laughs> And then what do you have to do?
1: Either way, you have to buy a new Frisbee. Right. Well, the, the the unpredictability of Frisbees, the way they can get caught on a breeze or sail off into the neighbor's yard, that sort of makes you, yeah, it makes it more likely that you'll end up having to buy a new one.
0: Right. And then of course, that's not even getting into the fact that you can print your
1: company's logo on it and hand it out. Oh, so good. Yeah. I just wonder how many like Dow Chemical Frisbees and Raytheon Frisbees there are out there. <laughs> Uh, but so around 1954 Fred Morrison wanted to get back into the game he was interested in giving the flyin saucer another try uh, so the following year uh, Morrison had a new model that he renamed the Pluto platter again <laughs> going with the space theme I think mm-hmm. he was like Pluto that's the most recently discovered planet let's name the name the toy after it okay uh, and you can see a, a, a patent for Morrison's model that you can actually look up uh, from I think filed in 1957 and awarded in 1958. But it looks a lot like a Frisbee you would see today. It's sort of a plastic disc with a lip that curves under. But in 1957, Morrison struck gold because that was the year he sold the rights to the Pluto Platter to a toy company called Whammo. Ah, uh, Whammo, Whammo Inc. And Whammo, from this point on, took care of the manufacturing and sales. I think they also helped him secure his patent, and then Morrison collected royalties on his design. Uh, but of course, we don't call these things Pluto Platters today. So, <laughs> so what happened? Uh, already in 1957, the toy had come to be known as a Frisbee a name which Morrison apparently originally hated, but he warmed to over time as he collected his millions. Uh, So where did the name come from? Well, it turns out Fred and Lucille were not the only kids throwing baking pans at each other. In 1871 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a guy named William Frisbee, spelled F-R-I-S-B-I-E, not B-E-E, uh, opened the Frisbee Pie Company, which amazingly sold pies. <laughs> and apparently it was something of a local tradition for students at various East Coast universities like Yale, which is also in Connecticut, to throw Frisbee pie tins at each other and yell Frisbee. <laughs> and the wham Company learned about this tradition and named their new acquisition after it. So that's where the name comes from. It's a pie company, uh, and uh, and once frisbee, the frisbee belonged to Whammo. It underwent some more design improvements. Crucially, in 1964, a Whammo employee named Ed Hedrick added a series of ridges or grooves on the surface that helped the thrower grip the plastic and also increase the weight of the rim to help the frisbee fly with greater stability. And this is actually a thing in the design of, of discus or frisbee. If you distribute more of the weight to the Outer edges That helps it uh, spin faster, have more angular momentum and spinning, which again is good for helping it maintain a, a stable angle. Hmm. Uh, and that, that Time article I mentioned earlier it includes an amazing quote from an earlier Time article, one from 1972, about Frisbee groupies of the period, <laughs> a.k.a. Froopies. And I've got no words for this. It goes, quote, Dr. Stancil Johnson, a long-haired Santa Monica psychiatrist who serves as Frisbee's official historian, has an apparently sober explanation for the disc's popularity. They are, he says, quote, the perfect marriage between man's greatest tool, his hand, and his greatest dream to fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it seems like he's kind of reaching a bit there. But then well, again, you know, I, I don't know. Waxing poetic a little bit about the Frisbee. But, it's uh, possible we could catch ourselves saying something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So of course now we know that Frisbee is not just a a toy to toss with your family and your friends, but there's all this, you know, Frisbee sports of a million different kinds. There's Ultimate Frisbee. There's Frisbee golf, which uh, should I admit that I've played these sports and actually kind of enjoyed them?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, Frisbee golf looks fun. Is yeah. there
1: is there Frisbee sports stigma? I, I sense stigma. I don't know why. Um,
0: I mean, it, I I think it's just... There are varying individuals who engage in Frisbee golf, and some are undoubtedly going to be, um, you know, miscreants. Sure. Uh, But others are going to be, you know, fine Frisbee enthusiasts. Well, I confess. I've played Frisbee golf, and I liked it. (laughs) All right. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we will reach once more into the gift bag. all right we 're back uh, i 'm going to reach into the bag once more, and wamo here 's another one. This is a hula hoop. you mean the Whammo toy company yes yeah, okay, yeah because they 're going to factor into this uh, invention as well. Uh, so this is a really fun toy to discuss. I actually wrote an entire How Stuff Works article about this back in the day, How Hula Hoops Work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to blow through all of the info in that article uh, because in that I got to get into a lot of fun things like performance art with barbed wire hula hoops and so <laughs> forth. <laughs> yeah, flaming hula hoops, the role of hula. It, it, it was it was, a, it was, a really cool one. It was one of those where it was assigned to me and I kind of groaned a little at first and then by the end of, it, end of it, I was like, oh, yeah, hula hoops are amazing. All right. Uh, it also gets into the physics uh, far more than I'm, – I'm not really going to get into the physics here today. But uh, I'm going to touch on the key history. So hoop toys themselves are quite ancient, uh, just lost in the mist of history because all you need are some dried vines. Uh, and the ability to sort of, you know, loop them together and to make a loop. And as such, you know, the ancient Egyptians had hoop toys.
1: Now, I understand that a lot of the ancient hoop toys were used for uh, for vertical rolling, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and
0: granted, we still do that today. One of my favorite things to do with a hula hoop is to do the trick. I don't know if you know if it has a name, where you take it and you fling it out vertically, but in a way so that it will be
1: rolling back to you. Yeah, you put backspin
0: on it. Yeah, you toss it with
1: it, backspin and it rolls to you that too. Yeah, it's
0: a fabulous trick. I feel like I'm I'm performing magic every time I do it, and I'm a little shocked that everyone around me isn't isn't uh, commenting on how marvelous this trick is. Uh, but of course, we all know it. Uh, we all we all know the trick. And then, of course, there's simply to you know the act of rolling a hoop around, usually using a stick to propel it, uh, which I often think is being kind of a, the kind of thing you would see uh, in a film or a TV show, like you would see Opie Taylor or. Um, Uh, Tom Sawyer doing this. Right, yeah. Kind of just an old-timey, simple toy, but something that would be fun to do. And so hoop rolling and hoop games were popular amid the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. The hoop is also as potent as a physical symbol, representing cyclical, yonic, and cosmic concepts. The hero Ganymede is often depicted with a hoop, and in North America, the Taos Pueblo people of what is now New Mexico used hoops in sacred dances and rituals to represent, uh, you know, the cyclical nature of life. Uh, various cultures, including the ancient British and uh, the Kahukia uh, people of the Mississippi River Valley. These were the mound builders who reached their peak uh, in the 13th century and declined before the coming of Europeans. They engaged in what we uh, often refer to as kill-the-hoop games. Now, this is kind of a combination of two different throwing acts. Someone will roll a hoop and then someone will throw a spear or some other object, but often it's a spear, through the hoop. Uh, so it's, you know, you're going to hit a, an artificial moving target with your weapon or thrown object. Mm-hmm. Kind of like skeet shooting. Yeah, yeah, kind of a, like an, an, an early version of skeet, FF skeet shooting. But most agree that in playing with hoops like this, uh, the discovery of what we think of as as hula hooping was surely experimented with. So if you have children, even ancient children, uh, in any of these cultures we've discussed, messing around with hoops, killing the afternoon with a hoop, undoubtedly somebody is going to realize that you can put it on your arm and spin it around. Mm -hmm. You can put it on your neck and spin it around. You can put it on your waist and spin it around. It's just how we – we we're curious creatures and in our tool use, we're going to get there. Uh, we're going to spin that hoop around our body at some point. And we also know that from just from military history, the concept uh, of a hoop weapon in the form of the chakram weapon of India, which we have a, an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about, uh, you know, this is something that is sometimes spun around a finger before launching, kind of like a sharp erobi uh, toy, but used as a shock weapon on the front lines. Huh. And, uh, and I believe it still remains a, a ritual weapon, uh, like a, a holy item uh, for the Sikhs, uh, uh, you'll sometimes see it presented as such. Uh, but but that in that we see like the idea of spinning a hoop type uh, item around your body uh, was already known. Now, according to Charles uh, Panati's "Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things," there was a medieval hoop craze apparently during the the 1500s, an Edwardian craze that resulted in uh, reports of dislocated backs and heart failure. And then hula itself for hula hoop because, again, these were not called hula hoops. Hula enters the Western world in the 1700s with the knowledge of Polynesian cultures. Uh, hoop dancing for fitness became a European craze in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And then in 1958, Whammo enters the picture, gives us the hula hoop as created by Richard Near and author Spud Mellon, who were said to have been inspired by tales of Australian children playing with bamboo hoops. But this one, of course, the the o hoop is a plastic hoop and it cost uh, – I was reading something like $1.98 and, uh, and, and uh, it sold something like 25 million units in two months. And by the end of 58, it had made $45 million. Wow. So it was a colossal hit for Whammo Uh But it was also a craze. So it did not – last as long. Like the hula hoop, sometimes a hula hoop and a human engage in a lifelong relationship. Yeah. You know, you, the, the, you really get into it. You're performing hula hoop dances, etc. Other times, the hula hoop is something you play with a little bit and then it gets thrown in the garage and forgotten about. Right. And, and also, unlike the frisbee, uh, it's, it's harder to destroy a
1: hula hoop. You've really got to. You've really got to try to destroy a hula. I don't know. Have you ever destroyed a hula hoop, Joe? Not destroyed one. I'm just not sure. It's harder. Oh, you're you're much less likely to lose a hula hoop yeah. into a neighbor's yard or something. Yeah. So I can't help but
0: think that. Also attributed the fact that sales of the hula hoop really fell off, but luckily, this was exactly the same time when Wham-O moved on to the frisbee, uh, so they really had a one two punch on inventions or reinventions that they could target towards the uh, you know the, the toy hungry American consumer, right making tens of millions off of just basic round
1: objects. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Recreate it, give it a fancy name and market it. That's something we see time and time again. And in fact, when we do our next episode, which will be another reach into the the toy bag, we'll see this again where something ancient and well-known simply gets a a new name and gets marketed uh, a whole lot and it becomes this new invention. Um, As for the hula hoop, again, sometimes we forget about the hula hoop, but it has remained with us. You can still buy a hula hoop, but uh, you know, wherever you are, there's a store around you where you can buy one probably. And uh, it even uh, is, as far as holidays go, it even factors into our Christmas songs. Uh,
1: there's the, um, uh, which one oh, is it? Oh, that horrible chipmunk, yeah, song. chipmunk song. Yeah, the uh, chipmunk uh, song. Me, I oh, want a hula hoop? Yeah, want play plane that loops the loop, me, I want a hula hoop. There you go. Classic toy. I would think a chipmunk is too small to use a hula hoop.
0: Yeah. No, we'd have, we definitely would have to get into the physics of it because <laughs> a small hoop is going to be far more um, uh, energy intensive. Uh, and i'm not sure that a, a chipmunk as much as i love chipmunks and squirrels uh, oh. and i know our listeners do
1: too oh wait a minute now n- now that i'm thinking about it aren't the chipmunks in the chipmunks not regular chipmunk size they are more the size of human children they are the size of human children which yeah. is that's a grotesque blasphemy against nature <laughs>
0: but still that might make them more uh, able to use an actual hula hoop All right, so we're going to go ahead and call this episode uh, here, but we will be back next week with more toys, Uh, generally like classic toys, I think, Uh, and we'll we'll explore their history, uh, where they came from. Do they have ancient roots? Do they have modern roots? Inevitably, do they have both? In the meantime, we'd obviously love to hear from anyone who has thoughts on these various uh, toys. Uh, and also, uh, are you a discus thrower? Have you experience with the, the sport of throwing a discus? Do you have thoughts on uh, on Joe's uh, commentary on, uh, on on the the physics of throwing the discus? What's your experience? with those physics. We would love to hear from you. Absolutely. Please share. Alright, if you want to listen to more episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's the, uh, that's, that's the, the I guess the, the, the homepage for the show. But, of course, you can find this podcast anywhere you get podcasts. Wherever it is, make sure you've subscribed. That way you'll definitely get part two of our toy exploration. And uh, leave us a nice rating if you have the power to do so, uh, you know, whatever the page is, because that helps us out in the long run. Also, be sure to check out Stuff to Blow Your Mind at that is our other podcast, and, uh, and there's you know years and years' worth of great content there as well.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Invention is a production of iHeartRadio.